Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. And this probably, I, I, I think we could call this, in a sense, kind of the whole summary of the Gospels, um, where Jesus reveals himself as a risen Lord, identifies his own mission, gives that own mission to his disciples, and then goes on to demonstrate the truth of what he said and the truth of his person. It begins, then, on the evening of the same day, the first day of the week. Um, so already we're talking about Sunday as the, uh, as the important day in the Christian story. The doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. We know, for instance, that when at the resurrection of the Lord, when the soldiers themselves told the high priests exactly what had happened at the tomb, and the high priest gave them a, uh, a significant sum of money to spread the rumor that the apostles had come and stolen the body. That means the apostles now were people who were, in a sense, hunted. They were, they were going to be prosecuted, most probably, um, for, for body stealing. And, uh, and then it says that, but while they're in the room then hiding themselves for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. Now, the doors are closed. John wants us to know that this is not an, an illusion. This is not just, oh, well, he didn't die really anyway. Um, that it was only kind of a, a, a simulated death and that really he was up alive and walking around. No, he comes through the closed doors. He's not the person he was before. There's something different about him and that he is able to walk through closed doors without difficulty. And he says to them, peace be with you, which means that it's shalom, it means well-being, it's the greeting of extending all that is good to another person. And then he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them the wounds that he had suffered on the cross and his hands and his side. And the disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And he said to them again, peace be with you. So the apostles now, here in the room, are now joyful because they, well, this really is the Lord. We, he's, he's here in person. We've seen his hands. We've seen his side. And, uh, and then he says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Now this, this is a remarkable, a remarkable passage in the scripture. Because, first of all, he identifies why did the Father send him? He's going to tell us why the Father sent him. And then he's going to bestow that mission upon his disciples. And this is unbelievable. This is enormous. Because what he says he came for has a deep, deep history to it, deep in the book of Genesis, deep in the story of God and creation. And after he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So this is Pentecost in John's Gospel. 
And what happens in Pentecost, he says then, for those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. And for those whose sins you retain, they are retained. This is the power that they receive in the Holy Spirit. This is when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And then what does he do with what the Father sends me, I send you? He tells them it's for the forgiveness of sin. Does this mean, therefore, that he came to establish simply the, the sacrament of reconciliation? Certainly, that's a part of the forgiveness of sin, and certainly that's an essential, ordinary way of having our sins forgiven. But there's something more than that. There's something broader than that, and there's something that reaches deep back into the Old Testament, into the law and the prophets. <clears throat> For we know from the beginning of John's Gospel that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And uh, he was in with God in the beginning, and through him everything that is came to be. So, he is the author now of creation. He is the vehicle through which the Trinity creates, is the Word. And who is the Word? John tells us again, the Word is the light of men, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. What is this allusion to the light of men? If we go back in again into the story of creation, there is, we are told, there is God, there is the Spirit, and then God speaks, there is the Word. And the Word is identified with light. And so, especially in many of the, in, in the major, some of the major medieval theologians, Light then becomes identifiable with the Word and is the first foundation of all that is created. For once light is established, then God creates. Before that, God does not create light. He simply speaks light. Which means that through the Word, the foundation of all reality is established. And God looks at that reality each time and sees how good it is. Jesus has just spent 30-some years on earth and three years in active ministry, has endured the passion, has seen the disfigurement of humanity, has seen it both spiritually, mentally, and physically. He has seen it in the possession of demons, of the very thing that came to be through the word, through him, through light. And and so the forgiveness of sin is more than forgiving my individual sins, which he gave the apostles the power to do. But it is also to forgive the sin of the world, forgive human sinfulness. And the way that we forgive human sinfulness, we have seen, for instance, in the Gospels, is to undo the consequences of that sinfulness in the lives of men and women. We know very clearly and we know fully well that in the scriptural view of the humankind, of the human race, that that which was good and pristine in the beginning was mutated by sin and reproduced, therefore, a sinful species. That sinful species is the result of human sinfulness. And that's the whole intention of the story of Adam and Eve, that it is the point, it is the place 
where it is identified that the decline of humanity takes place because of the free decisions of human persons, which creates a mutation in their nature in such a way that they reproduce their own flawed kind, their own fallen kind. Jesus says that the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And what is he sending them to do? To forgive sin. And how has he demonstrated the forgiveness of sin? He has demonstrated it through the physical healings and through the miracles that he has performed in his public life. In John's Gospel, seven main miracles, um, many of which, you know, the healing, the, the changing of the water into wine, the multiplication of loaves and fishes, the, the healing of the... Uh, the healing of the uh, of the crippled and, the, and the, the the mute and the possessed and so forth, and eventually up to the healing of the man born blind and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So these are a progressive insight into a, the mission that the Father has sent Jesus on, which is to undo the consequences of sin in the world. And in undoing the consequences of sin, bring forgiveness so that we might sin no more. So this then becomes a very, very complicated mission for the church. You know that um, we have the sacramental rite, and in that sacramental rite, we, we do an enormous amount to lift the burden of sin from the backs of humanity. And we create, through the sacrament of the church, the great possibility of a stronger, a better humanity, one that liberated from its sins becomes liberated from the consequences of its sins and are able then to go forward and to help others to escape the burdens that lie upon them. How do they do this? Jesus says they do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, which he bestows on them at this encounter in the upper room when he walks through the closed doors. So what we are seeing now, in a sense, we have seen in the book of Genesis the creation story, where Jesus says, now the Father has sent me to recreate in goodness what I created in the beginning in goodness. In order to do that, we have to cut through the powerful incrustations of sin. And in doing that, lift from humanity the burdens that it has placed upon itself because of how it has lived its life. You know, we often hear, well, how could a good guy, no, I, I don't believe in God anymore because how could a good God allow this to happen? That's not the question. The question is, how could we have allowed that to happen? You know, this, how could God have allowed that to happen, is responsible for a great deal of the agnosticism and the atheism that followed upon the two great wars of the 20th century. We know that the, the, uh, that the whole German synod business is this, well, the church has failed. Uh, it has disappointed us, and so, um, so we now have to create a new one. We have to do it our way since God's way was inadequate. Um, the question was not really the failure of the institutional church. The, fa the, the, uh, the issue was the failure of human beings, 
those whose sins were not forgiven, who did not seek the forgiveness of the sins, did not seek any kind of conversion, did not seek any kind of deeper relationship with the Lord, but simply took took the uh, took the the mores of the church as a light cloak upon their shoulders, and uh, as something that never penetrated below the surface. And that, and, and in, in fact, therefore, they became enslaved to the cultures in which they lived, exactly as we can become enslaved to the cultures in which we live. And those cultures are dark, and those cultures are perverse. We certainly have a dark and perverse culture in our country. Certainly the Third Reich was a dark and a perverse culture. Certainly a great deal of the, uh, of the uh, ruling class mismanagement in every society is a dark story. And for us to simply buy that, it's, it's interesting that in uh, Max Weber's work on the, uh, spirit of the, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, he uh, he shows the he shows the, the deterioration of the human values and the human insecurity and what it leads to, and he is the one that uses the image that certainly Calvin did not did not in any way um, advocate the acquisition of wealth for its own sake, but in leaving the question of salvation, um, making it personal only and not corporate. Um, and using predestination, what he ends up what, what ends up happening is that the later Calvinists began to decide that wealth and power somehow is a sign of God's favor, and uh, and as Weber says then, in summary of that, that that which is which should have laid lightly on their shoulders, um, became for them an iron cage. Well, the same thing happens to the social mores of every age. Those sh that should somehow or other be lightly on our shoulders as we pass through history and as we seek the presence of the living God, as we desire to be oriented toward the living God, as we desire to have our sins forgiven, as we desire to come closer to the Lord. But along the way we can get trapped in our culture, that instead of it being simply um, something that surrounds us, something that lays upon us lightly, then it becomes a cage in which we are trapped, and that certainly happened in the Third Reich. That certainly happens to the new morality in our society today, that it becomes a cage that we cannot get out of. And, uh, and, and fearfully, it, it bodes ill for the future, exactly as the culture of the 1930s in Germany bode ill for the rest of the world. And so Jesus says to the church, undo this, undo this if you can. You have the power, but you have to also then be able to convert the hearts. And this too often is what happened. It would, it's what happened in our society. It's what happened in those societies where the church has completely collapsed in Belgium and Ireland and Quebec and Spain and places like this, where the culture has completely collapsed, the culture of faith, and that what has replaced it then is a dark and an oppressive culture of secularism. Of, uh, of basically hopelessness and basically of desperation, causing all sorts, of, all sorts of energetic and strange phenomenon to arise within that society. 
And yet Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, through the Holy Spirit, you can bring about the forgiveness of sins. That was my mission. And I turn it over to you. If you are faithful to it, if you are faithful to it, then eventually there will be redemption. But if, in fact, you refuse to suffer for it, if, in fact, you refuse to remain faithful during the course of this journey, then a great darkness will continue to hold mankind in iron cages, will be able to hold humanity in the cages of what should be passing cultures and lock them then into the present darkness. So then, once this has happened, what we encounter then in this first part of this Gospel of John, what, what we encounter then is cosmic in a sense. We find then the Lord through whom all things have come to be now comes into the world sent by the Father to restore that creation. He shows us what it means to restore the creation. He shows us how to restore the creation. He shows us the price that people pay to restore the creation. And then he says, now go forth and do the same thing. I give you this mission. I give it to you, and I give you also the spirit of myself and the Father to give you the strength and the wisdom to know how to carry it forward. This does not mean that those who sign up for the journey are all faithful. No, only, for instance, the story, the, the story of Judas. Um, we know that there is betrayal all along the way. We know that the Lord is not going to reestablish a paradise upon this earth, but he is preparing a paradise for humanity beyond time and place. And that our journey there oftentimes is fraught with difficulty, but each step of the way should be the seeking of coming out from underneath the burden of our own sins and reaching out and helping others do the same, and the church doing so also, not only in a sacramental way, but also in a historical, a physical, and existential sort of way. It is the sole justification for the charitable, for the corporal and, and uh, spiritual works of mercy, which morph into our society to a great extent into um, social justice projects. But the, so many of the social justice projects themselves become dark because they lose the spirit, because they abandon the spirit, and they become, once again, trapped in the present culture. We see this in many of the do-good programs, for instance, of the government of the, of the United Nations. Um, you know, in their population control, the way we see it in the, in the cultural imperialism of the United States. Yeah, we'll financially help you who are in trouble, but only if you adapt our sexual morality. You can't have your own. You can't, you can't, um, you, you can't develop any kind of unique culture of your own. You must accept ours or we'll let you die. Um, pretty dark, pretty dark, and very true. Um, <clears throat> I think we've, we've, already, we've already found that now in Africa where they are rejecting as part of, you know, their moral code, rejecting the LGBTQT agenda and, tra and trans agenda and so forth, saying that this is not part of who we are in Africa. And we're saying, fine then, starve to death. Um, we're, no, we're, not, we're not giving you anything unless you, unless you submit to, to our culture. That's pretty dark. 
And yet we within this culture have the obligation to liberate ourselves from this culture in order that we might then enable it to do the good it is supposed to do in other parts of the world. Now the gospel, however, continues past this dramatic kind of encounter with, with reality. And it goes on, Thomas called the twin, who was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And when the disciples said, we have seen the Lord, he answered, unless I see the holes that the nails made in his hands, can put my finger into the holes they, they made then, unless I can put my hand into his side, I refuse to believe. Eight days later, again on the first day of the week, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time, and the doors were closed. But Jesus came in and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he spoke to Thomas, put your finger here and look into here in my hand and give me your hand and put it into my side. Doubt no longer, but believe. And Thomas replied, my Lord and my God. There is no indication that Thomas took him up on it and actually did what he invited him to do. He believed and it was not necessary for him then to find this kind of concrete proof. And then Jesus says to him, you believe because you can see me. Happy are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, here comes a very interesting part of the faith as well. Thomas saw and Thomas believed. But the disciples went out and they proclaimed Jesus Christ. In fact, as we hear in the Acts of the Apostles, that at one occasion 5,000 people um, converted to Christianity. Uh, strangely enough, strangely enough, they converted not because they had seen the Lord in person, but because they had heard the word and the testimony of the first Christians, of the first disciples. And that's why we become, in a very, very crucial, in a very critical way, a people of the word. Because we believe based, and this is interesting, we believe based on our ability to trust those who actually saw the Lord. And we believe in their words and believe in their word. This is the power of scripture. It is the word of God spoken through the words of the disciples. And that the language carries with it the person of the Christ in order that we encounter in word what they encountered in person. Isn't it pretty fascinating to realize that Christianity has been among us now for over 2,000 years, that it has become a dominant world religion, that it is in every corner of the world, in every place in the world, and that it is based almost completely on trust, on trusting the words that come to us from sacred scripture, on trusting the magisterium of the church, on trusting the testimony and the witness of the apostles. A fascinating reality when we learn that the role that trust plays in faith. And this, I think, is one of the things that causes a great crisis of faith. When one generation ceases in any way to trust anyone that has gone before them. That's kind of frightening, because if you don't trust the people who have come before us, any of them, then you cannot find the Lord, because the Lord is found on the basis of his word, and his word 
his meaning and power and strength to us through the Holy Spirit, but in our willingness to trust the witness of others, of the witness particularly of the first Christians, the witness of the apostles. And so we become then, in a very real and important sense, we become then the people of the word, not of the book, as Muhammad would say, but of the word, because the word is a living reality. The word we know from St. John's Gospel is, in fact, God. And so when the word is alive and present and trusted within the Christian community, the Lord is present. If the, if the word is heard, then Jesus is present among us. But if it is not trusted, then we have rejected him and turned away from him and refused to believe. There is no miracle strong enough to convince on those who have become convicted unbelievers to believe. Even the rich man says that in the Gospel of Luke, or Abraham says that in the Gospel of Luke. Even if someone would raise from the dead, they would not believe if they have not believed in Moses and the prophets. In other words, that if you do not believe what the Word of God has bestowed and deposited within your community, you would not believe even at the resurrection. It becomes unconvincing. And we see in this then the final condemnation of the chief priests and the scribes. For they were gifted with the, with the gift of the Word of God, with the gift of the law and the prophets. And when the law and the prophets came to fulfillment, they closed their ears, their eyes, and their hearts. And they no longer trusted that the, when the fulfillment of the law and the prophets came and stood in their midst, they saw it not as a time for rejoicing, but as a threat, as a threat to their way of life, as a threat to their power, as a threat to their comfort, as a threat to the accommodations they had made with the Roman culture of their age, and so forth. We find that within our own society. While Thomas believed in the Lord, says, blessed are you, believe because you think, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe, that's us, blessed are we, if we believe in the word of God because we have the humility and the truthfulness within ourselves to trust the witness and the testimony of others. And while along the way of the transmission of faith to us, there probably have been very many weak links in that transmission, we all know there have also been very many strong links in that transmission. And our willingness to trust and to believe those who have gone before us is foundational to our capacity to believe in the contemporary world. That's why a generation of unfaithfulness is a disaster for other people's lives because it deprives the next generation of that which they need to seek the forgiveness of their sins and to share that forgiveness with others. In other words, it takes away from them what they need to fulfill the mission that the Lord gave the church in today's gospel. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And then he sent the apostles among them to forgive sin. Let us pray for the forgiveness of our own sins, for the forgiveness of the sins of the world, and plead with the Lord to lift the burden of infidelity from the backs of our people 
that we may experience a culture of truth and a culture of hope and a culture of light. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he sunk to